I'm only shaking your hand if you give more funding to our RFS. So many people here have lost their homes. So last summer, the one before lockdown, when most of us had never heard of the phrase novel coronavirus, the biggest story around at that time in Australia was, of course, the bushfires. We'd been covering the story for a few days and... I think there was a lot of antagonism toward the Prime Minister at the time because he was seen to be off on holiday before Christmas and while the fires were burning elsewhere in the country, there was a perception that he was absent or AWOL. That's ABC News cameraman Greg Nelson. At this point, Prime Minister Scott Morrison had been copping heaps of flack for going to Hawaii a few days before Christmas. And meanwhile, volunteer rural firefighters were working around the clock to save properties and save lives. On that day, we had been news gathering and word came through that the Prime Minister was coming to do a tour of the region, which is not uncommon when there's a big disaster. One of those little towns between Bega and Cabago is Korma, which had been pretty badly hit by the fires. They weren't getting as much attention as as the bigger population centres, but it was still quite devastating for them. And they had a very small fire shed and we'd already been to that fire shed and spoken to people there. So we knew how upset people were generally. I could see that he was talking to the the brigade captains and, you know, the high-ranking officers and the RFS liaison. He was talking to them off to the side of the shed and the rest of the crews were mingling inside. So I stayed close to them and waited, expecting the Prime Minister's, you know, advanced people, his media team, to go in first as they normally would and gauge, you know, the room or the or the the, the depth of the feeling in the room or, or even just the space itself to make sure it was appropriate for him to come in. And they didn't do that. And so the Prime Minister walked in with his entourage and the press gallery camera was still sort of off covering that and I saw him go straight for this firefighter. It was quite a shock when the Prime Minister reached out his hand and the firefighter absolutely refused it. And I thought that in itself was was going to be newsworthy, but then the Prime Minister reached down and grabbed his hand and shook it. And I thought, well, now we've got something altogether different. I remember this footage so vividly. When I first saw it, I thought, wow, people are so angry. Australians are pretty polite, so that's a big deal refusing to shake the Prime Minister's hand. I suppose we all have moments like this when an image really leaves a lasting impact and maybe even shapes our perception of an event and our emotions and feelings around it. I definitely recall this image really well of the little girl in Vietnam. Um, It was all over the the news and the newspapers and magazines when I was a child, probably about the same age as she was. And it raised a lot of questions that no one in my family was able to answer. The media story and image that affected me was the one that occurred in 1993 of the two-year-old boy, James Bolger, He was led away by two 10-year-old boys to James's tragic death. The media were like a lynch mob and fueled the public into such a venomous state. I believe this is what led me into children's advocating and looking after children. It deeply impacted me. For me, it's the photo of there was a small Kurdish boy 
uh, who washed up dead on the beach in the Mediterranean. And it's one of those images that I can just never unsee. We were living in Hobart and my son lived a lovely life of singing and dancing, going to daycare, going for walks on the mountain, playing at the park, spending time with his grandparents. And there was just such a contrast between what my son was experiencing and what this child had been through and really how, how his life ended. I was motivated by this picture to give a lot of money, much more than I would usually give, to humanitarian relief because I felt so powerless and that seemed like the only thing I could do to make a difference and prevent more three-year-olds from dying while seeking asylum. This is Seriously Social, I'm Ginger Gorman and on the podcast today we're talking visual politics. So this is the idea that politics is not just shaped by words and actions, it's actually also shaped by images. Back in Korma in January 2020, Greg Nelson knew that awkward interaction between the Prime Minister and a volunteer firefighter was significant. And he knew that because he'd been on the ground a day or so longer than the PM. He also knew the context of why that firefighter was not keen to play the public relations game. After we had been to the fire station in Korma and it was all feeling very awkward and uncomfortable and the Prime Minister was keenly aware that there were cameras and they'd captured that moment. And he kept offering excuses, if you like, so because he knew that the microphones were there as well and talking about how the firefighter was obviously tired and he was upset. He was then pulled aside by the RFS liaison who said, look, no, actually, he's just lost his house as well. So at that, it's sort of, you know... the Prime Minister thought, well, I best leave him alone. And he went on to talk to other people and they moved on up to Cabago. In the broader context, there was a slow response in terms of the recovery or the disaster recovery. Certainly in Cabago, people had evacuated themselves to the Oval because that was the, the safe spot. They felt like they were on their own. There were no truckloads of disaster relief, tents, food, clothing, all that sort of thing just wasn't coming to them. And then you have the Prime Minister and his entourage come in. They're supposed to come in and offer support and show empathy and just an understanding that they understand what you're going through and they'll offer you whatever support you need. And they may not have a specific announcement. They might not turn up with a truckload of supplies, but they're there to see for themselves and then get the ball rolling, you know, make things happen. The police and riot squad had sent down their quick intervention teams from Sydney. You know, these are the guys that cruise around in black four-wheel drives with dark logos on the side and they wear the, um, the dark overalls. And, you know, often in times of disaster, you'll see them brought into these small communities to bolster the local ranks because, you know, you don't have big police forces there or big teams. So, there's all sorts of things that they need to come in and help out with. And, and that's what we assumed they were doing there at the time. But it became apparent later on that they were there for the Prime Minister's visit. They weren't working in the town. They were shadowing him. 
and they were part of his security detail. It's interesting, Greg, because I didn't realise this, but you also shot the footage of the young woman that in the same period of time, she refused to shake his hand as well. That's right. That was on the same trip. Did you know or have that sense that you sometimes get when you're in the media that this would be really impactful footage that you were taking as you were taking it? Oh, certainly. I mean, whenever you're following politicians around, you are looking for those interactions because, for want of a better term, they do live in a bubble. And those moments where they actually get to meet real people, unfortunately, you know, it's often at the worst times of their life or when things are going wrong or when they have a problem. And when you are following that, you want to see those those reactions. You want to gauge their level of empathy. You know, people just want to know that they're understood, that somebody understands what they're going through and that, you know, the support they need will be there. So when you capture something like that, yeah, you realise straight away that there is a news value to it. But did you understand it would be completely viral, that people would be making TikTok videos about it and that would it would be reported around the world. I mean, I would say I've seen that footage in various guises 30, 40, 50 times, like over and over and over again. No. I mean, you expect it to play nationally, but I didn't expect it to play as much as it did and I didn't expect it to get the response that it did because people take different things from it. So this idea that an image more than words or actions can have such a lasting impact on our perception of an event or our perception of a person. Well, there's a term for it. Look, I'm not sure how official the term visual politics is. About a dozen years ago, I started a research program here at the University of Queensland that looked at the political role of images. Uh, We kind of looked for a term that could capture what we're trying to do and somehow visual politics stuck. Professor Roland Bleicher teaches international relations, peace studies and political theory at the University of Queensland. He's also a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. I mean, the visual has always been... Uh, central to politics from you know from the beginning of time we had cave paintings we again we we celebrate certain monuments uh, but i think there's in the last sort of 20 30 years there've been sort of phenomena that really accentuate the way in which the visual is political and i think here primarily of of two phenomena one is the speed at which images circulate you know just 20 30 years ago uh, it would take quite a while for a newspaper article to appear in, in the Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald, and then to circulate around the world. Today, in the age of sort of social media, it literally it takes seconds for a news item, an image to be picked up and circulate. So that's sort of really that speed at which images circulate is, is hugely important and, and shapes the world we live in. There's also the issue of of who has control over images and their circulation. And until not long ago, a couple of decades, it was primarily media conglomerate states that could circulate images. But today, of course, everyone can circulate an image. We can take it, we all have smartphones, most of us, we can take an image, we can put it up on Instagram, on on TikTok, wherever, and, and within seconds, we have the chance to actually circulate images. And that leads to a certain democratization of, of the control of images, the circulation of images. And these two factors together, they do account for an increased importance of of images and the political role they play. You're talking about it as a kind of democratisation, but not everything is good that comes out of that. Like in a way, yes, we have control over it, but also a lot of images 
get out of control and they don't necessarily convey a correct meaning with them or people don't understand necessarily what information is being conveyed to them. Yes, absolutely. I think there's a few points here. One is that Yes, images are neither good nor bad. They're neither progressive nor regressive. You know, they're they're, uh, they're just political. You know, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is, of course, the videos that um, IS has circulated, the beheading videos that they have circulated in attempt to uh, gain worldwide uh, attention, and it worked. I mean, IS has been very savvy with the use of images. Terrorism, in many ways, is is a visual phenomena, and and terrorist attacks are often designed such that they have a, a maximum visual impact. So we see here the visual being strategically used for purposes of you know uh, of bad politics or purposes of something that is absolutely terrible violence. But we also see, for instance, social movements who try to um, advance certain social causes, making strategic use of images. That goes back to the suffragette movement, to uh, same-sex marriage movement, the people looking at climate change. The social movement, in that sense, use images for a progressive cause. So in that sense, there's no value attached to images. It's just images are part of the political and they're used in a range of different ways. But I'm a cyber hate expert, for example, and what I've seen in my work is predator trolls taking images and deliberately making misinformation and what the likes of Donald Trump would call fake news with it. You know, they are deliberately propagating images that don't mean the things that they seem to mean or they are set up to mean. So we can be very easily tricked with the volume and speed of images as well because they're not coming from any official sort of verified sources often. Yes, of course. And, and, and the, the images don't make sense by themselves, of course, and we can't control the meaning of images. So, so as soon as they circulate, uh, we have to interpret them and they can be interpreted in different ways. So I think then a task, especially for us as scholars, is to look at the politics surrounding that, of how images are used, how uh, they are received, how they're circulated, and what kind of political forces are at stake in that process. As a scholar, it's not easy to understand the exact impact of images. They don't often work in causal ways. We can say, well, we can rarely say this one image caused this particular event. And yet, they do shape our attitudes. So I think we have to then sort of use a whole range of different methods to see how our perceptions of phenomena, whether it's bushfires, whether it's the government, whether it's certain policies, how they shift over time in response to certain visual phenomena. It gives us almost a physiological response with an image, whereas I can't always say that that's true with words. It affects us differently, doesn't it? It does so, absolutely. And sometimes that the impact can be huge. You know, look at the uh, the image of Alan Kurdi, the three-year-old dead Syrian refugee that was stranded on a beach in Turkey about it, three, four years ago. It was incredible what kind of level of sympathy was circling worldwide. And to some extent, it led to policy changes around refugee policy in Germany, for instance. So this is an instance where we had one particular image circulating that was deeply emotional that also generated political change. You are doing a lot of work in this area, and I wonder what role you think images have played in the dehumanisation of refugees in Australia. But then also, as you say, there have been instances of humanisation. I've done a study with with several colleagues where we looked at how Australia has visualised refugees over the last uh, decade or so. Um, and so we systematically surveyed uh, front page coverage of prominent Australian newspapers to see how refugees are, are portrayed. And, and we found a very, very interesting pattern. And that is the overwhelming number of images, uh, almost three quarters, 
depict refugees in, in large groups. And of course, in the context of boats, when that was kind of the, the, the phenomena that we were witnessing. Now, this is very interesting and it's politically very important because there's a lot of psychological studies that show viewers who see depictions of refugees, they feel empathetic when they see an individual refugee. We call that the identifiable victim effect. When we can see a person with a face, we know a story, we can sort of imagine this could be us. And, and most people feel sympathetic and they want to help in that context. But studies have shown that with every person that is added to that image, people feel less empathetic, but they feel something else. When they see an image of 30, 50, 200 refugees, they often don't feel empathy, but they feel fear. So when we have visual patterns in Australia's newspapers uh, over a decade that show refugees primarily as large groups, this leads to a certain collective sort of responses, certain attitudes that that see refugees less as a humanitarian problem that requires our compassion, our, our help, but more, as it's kind of portrayed politically, as a question of sovereignty, of border controls. Uh, and for us, that leads ultimately to a dehumanization of refugees. And, and, and we can see here how these visual phenomena, they interact with, with verbal discourses around cue jumping and a whole range of ways in which refugees are portrayed. But again, the visual in that sense reinforce the verbal messages we have and they lead to a political discourse around refugees that has a, a very particular kind of connotation. I think we all have a certain responsibility as scholars, as journalists, as politicians, as everyday citizens to be aware of these phenomena and to kind of, you know, uh, be aware of our privileged position in Australia and the responsibility we have towards those who are less privileged. It's Christmas time. I have this really vivid memory from my childhood in the 1980s of images from the Ethiopian famine. For ages, those harrowing scenes of malnourished kids whose bellies were distended while their arms and legs were just skin and bone, those pictures were the only thing I knew about people from Ethiopia. There is a charity working in Ethiopia during that time. It's called the World Vision. And somehow the information go to the famous Irish singer, Bob Gildov, and he was alarmed by the situation and he started working and telling his friends to, to, to organize and then uh, they uh, produced a single uh, famously known as Do They Know Christmas? Yeah, do they know it's Christmas time? Uh, do, uh, do, do they know that uh, it is Christmas time? That's Mr. Barry Hun Daegu Temeskin. He's Jaj Defer of the Embassy of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia in Canberra. And I've got to say, those images were really effective in terms of raising awareness and aid for the people caught up in that disaster. It was done for a good week. Uh, actually, this was uh, just to... Uh, show that how sensitive the issue is and uh, how uh, the world should respond positively. Uh, initially, they didn't. I don't think they did. They did think that this will create a stigma on uh, on Ethiopian. And uh, unfortunately, uh, through time, this was repeated. And as you have said, in many parts of the world, and then it became that Ethiopia once. Uh, has uh, reached to a point that it, it was considered a poster child of the, uh, the family. 
Yeah, so this is interesting. You're yeah. saying it was done for the purposes of goodwill, but yeah. actually over time these images were used and misused mm. and have perhaps created an untrue impression of yeah, Ethiopia. Yeah, that's not true. One, it has been a factual fallacy. This famine occurred in some part of the country, mainly in the northern part of the country, in Tigray and Amara regions, where the rest of the Ethiopia was uh, in a good shape, and uh, this was not reflected. Again, Ethiopia is a very ancient country with a very brilliant history, uh, with a statehood for about more than 3,000 years. It's incredible. It's continuous statehood, yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and uh, we do have famous athletes like Baba Bikila, Haile Gabriel Tutulu. We had uh, a very known coffee, Ethiopian coffee. We have uh, a very good history of independence. We have never surrendered to the colonialism. So, Berahun, I had a taxi driver not very long ago, and he was originally from Ethiopia, but now is an Australian resident. Mm -hmm. And he was talking to me about these images of the famine, and he said to me, these images have ruined our country in the eyes of the world. And he was telling me about your beautiful mountains and your coffee and your food and your culture and lots of the things you're talking about. Mm. And he was saying, I wish people knew these things about Ethiopia. Yeah. How would you respond to those comments of his? Yeah, there are many, many things. So that, doesn't, that was not reflected in that. But it showed only some parts of the country. Uh, uh, this famine occurred in that part of the country. And then it became a symbol for the whole country, which is not true. I've got to stop you here because this office is filling with the smell of the most beautiful coffee. Okay, I'll just <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, let's have the coffee now. Is this Ethiopian coffee? Yes, it's That's Ethiopian coming. coffee. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Yeah. So what's the answer? How can NGOs compel people with means and security to help when we are so numb to stories of war and famine that we need to see images of children dead or suffering just to notice them? They're sort of neo-colonial, if you want to use that term. A lot of NGOs, for instance, are fully aware that this is problematic. The dilemma they have is that we know that people in the West, uh, they feel empathy when they see these images. They feel sympathy, they, they donate. So, so NGOs know using these images works for them. You know, it, it allows them to, to raise money to actually address humanitarian causes. So what our project tries to do, we try to find ways of uh, depicting victims of crisis in more humane, in more empathetic ways without losing that empathy effect. So we have a whole range of people involved from photojournalists, photographers, but also social scientists and social psychologists who actually test empirically how, how people respond to images. And with a team of about a dozen people, we work with four organizations. We work with the World Press Photo Foundation, uh, which is one of the leading organizations in photojournalism, with the International Committee of the Red Cross, with the Australian Red Cross, and with Metsa Sans Frontières. There's no easy solutions, but we, what we try to do basically is we try to help NGOs to develop a visual policy that is more attuned to victims, more sensitive, and at the same time remain successful in their funding campaigns. This is Seriously Social, I'm Ginger Gorman. Next time, a change of tone. 
we'll look at how humour can do a lot more than just make you laugh. Thanks for all of your support and remember, we do so much more than just this podcast. Check out our website, seriouslysocial.org, for videos and articles and all of the links so you can connect with us on social media. See you next time.